Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. A very special podcast. What antiques are we talking about this week? I want to talk about salt cellars. Now, is this because of a controversial fact we heard from a close friend earlier this week? That fact being what, if you want to share with the audience, Ken? That sometimes they are called salt pigs? I don't know that it's controversial. Is it controversial? You reacted as if you had just been shot, so like... I assumed there was controversy. I was shocked. I had never heard it before. I was also surprised to find out that it was, in fact, a more common parlance than a salt cellar. You seemed very alarmed. It's a very strange thing to learn. So salt cellars. Or, as you've so aptly pointed out, perhaps the salt pig. So the legend goes. Well, salt cellars actually have a ton of names. Steve, Carl, Tim. Yeah, Jerry. They're also referred to as the salt, the salt box, a salt pig, a lidded salt, an open salt, a master salt, an individual salt, or trencher salt. But what is it? It is a piece of tableware for holding and dispensing salt. The end. Over dinner, ironically, with my boyfriend, we discovered that the origin of the word for salt cellar is the Anglo-Norman word sailor, S-A-L-E-R, which means salt container. So through some mutation of language, saying sailor, which does sound an awful lot like cellar, combined with what it holds, became referred to as a salt cellar. Why was it ironic? Because it's a little too ironic. And yeah, I really do think. It's a salt cellar on my wedding table. Ooh la la. Now, a master salt is a larger receptacle from which smaller salt dishes are filled. An individual salt, as the name suggests, is a salt meant for a single diner. This is my salt and mine alone. (laughs) You cannot touch my fucking salt. (laughs) A trencher salt was a sort of medium size meant to be shared between two diners. Ooh, how intimate. (laughs) I can't cite my sources on this one, but it says here that trencher salts were the leading cause of salt-related eroticism. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Now... What do you know about salt, Ken? Your body need it to do thing. That's true. If you know have salt, your brain mush. Okay, yeah. I was thinking more along the lines of that salt is one of the most important compounds in human history. Due to the aforementioned mush brain when you don't have it. Due to the aforementioned mush brain. It also helps your body retain water, which you need inside of your body and not outside of it. This is why Venice was built, because they got chased onto a lagoon no one else wanted to live in and said, hey, you know what's really easy to farm in a lagoon? Salt. And then they started farming salt. And then suddenly, they're the richest city on the Mediterranean. Exactly right. And then everyone started wearing really cool masks. Was that related to the salt? No, it was just fun. Well, that's true. So salt is biologically important, but more important than even that is that it was socially important and financially important. I would still argue the biological importance is more important. Yeah, but there were a lot of ways to get salt in your body that weren't owning salt as a condiment. Interesting. Well, it's largely the earliest form of preservation, so a lot of the food you eat would be salted. Oh, that's right. Did you hear about the Viking butter? Uh, no. What? Tell me more about Viking butter. So you know butter, right? I've seen it. And how at the grocery store it comes in two varietals, salted and unsalted? Yes. And if you buy the salted butter, you can leave it in a dish on your countertop for a while? Yeah. And use it room temperature-like? But if you buy unsalted butter, it has to live in the fridge Uh because of the aforementioned salt preservation you were talking about. Yes. So the Vikings not having refrigerators as an option or grocery stores as an option, but still wanting to have butter on their boats for long sea voyages, were like, all right, how much salt can we pack into this cream? And so they basically did, and I'm not going to get the correct ratio, but it seems to be like about a one to one salt to cream ratio. (laughs) 
There we go. That's the perfect ratio for anything. You have to wash the butter before you can use it. <laughs> yeah, to get the salt off. Yeah. It's just salt. <laughs> oh, man. Good times. I didn't know that that was the origin of salted butter. So that's really... I don't know that that's the origin, but it is fun. Well, that's a fun, fun anecdote about salted butter. And that's why people come here to the Antiques Freaks podcast is for my thrilling butter anecdotes. It's for fun anecdotes about butter and salt. Or both. <laughs> Por que no los dos? Salt is many things, but mostly it's a mineral. <laughs> <laughs> salt was really important. many things. Salt was really important. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just flashing back to watching my classmates write their essays on the morning they were due while still hungover from the night before. Yeah. <laughs> Salt is many things. <laughs> Salt is easily one of the subjects of this essay. Thank you for picking up the vibe I was going for, by the way. <laughs> Salt used to be less of a food item and way more of an investment, Ooh. almost to the point of being the basis of many economies. Like Beanie Babies. Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt. I don't see why not. Apart from the obvious reasons, but apart from those. <laughs> I mean, there's reasons to see why not. But, you know, the Romans did weirder shit than that. Garum being among them. So I'm not gonna, like, I'm not gonna come at it too hard, which is why I'm going to put that this, like, it could be legend, it could be real, it is a thing people say. You might be right, and I may be crazy, but it just might be a salt cellar you're looking for. That's true. To the point where it is theorized that the word salary actually comes from the word for salt. Oh, that would be very fun if true. And containers for containing salt actually are traced back to classical era Rome and even earlier to BC 4000 China. Now, because of its high cost and its high status as basically the NFTs of the gourmet world. How dare you? Salt is useful. But I love sounding like a wicked out-of-touch boomer who's trying to connect with the youngins. Shout out to all of our boomer listeners. We love and appreciate you. We love and appreciate you. And frankly, we're just as lost as you are when it comes to things that are younger than us. <laughs> So during the Middle Ages is when the concept of a decorative salt cellar really evolved. For political reasons and regular showboating reasons, the salt cellar would be a large, usually very flashy receptacle to show that you were a person who could afford salt. And more than that, you were a person who could afford to put salt on your food whenever the fuck you felt like it. Not just for preservation purposes, but to taste. Exactly, which suggested that you were also rich enough to be eating food fresh. That's because you went to Subway. No. <laughs> Don't do that. Love yourself. Typically, these were actually decorated with sea and ocean motifs, which I find extremely charming. Because that's where the salt comes from. Because that's where the salt comes from. The sea is salty and so is my salt. And in addition to the master salt that said, I'm the motherfucker with the salt, <laughs> you could have smaller individual salt cellars to be distributed for diners to share either between themselves or individually. And depending on how rich and powerful you were, this could be stale bread that you piled the salt on top of. Waste not. Precisely. And what with soups and gravies and stews and so on, using bread as a kind of food utensil in and of itself is not a new concept. I don't know why, but what with soup is really sending me. <laughs> what with soup and all, you know? What with soup. 
This trend would move on to the Rococo and Baroque periods. Oh, is shit about to go buck wild? Shit's about to pop the hell off. Hell yes. This is where you see the absolute pinnacle of a salt cellar as a status symbol. I bet you fucking do. At least one example, the Exeter salt, is just shaped like a castle, a whole castle, encrusted with emeralds. Beautiful. There is one royal salt cellar that is the most erotic thing I've seen since Catherine the Great's whole collection which just features Poseidon and his extremely sculpted naked form reaching out to touch, what's the sexy Greek god? I forgot her name, the sex one, who's horny. Aphrodite? Aphrodite, he's reaching out to touch Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of love, Eros is the erotic one, hence the name. Yeah, but I'm, we're talking pop culture here, not sensibility. Oh, okay. <laughs> the Greeks recognize several different forms of love. Sorry, I was briefly possessed by a classicist. But only one of them was sexy enough to represent my salt. True. And that was Poseidon <laughs> and Aphrodite. And between them, you would pinch between their naked, shimmering, muscular silver thighs to get your salt. Damn. The pedestal was also inscribed with a variety of sensuous nudes. Well, you know, for art. This is also when you get the introduction of the extremely, what I'm going to go ahead and call the bugfuck introduction of the Neff, which is a master salt that is anywhere from regular plate-sized to almost actual model ship-sized, articulated like extremely elegant silver or other metalwork boats that the salt was just on top of. Sometimes little pirate boats crewed with guys made out of silver. Big, big, elaborate boats. I need five. They were so fucked up in scale that they actually managed to warrant their own term, <laughs> which is impressive. I need a salt armada. And then, Ken, what would come along? What period of time do you associate with wild designs, unrestricted creativity, and extremely elaborate dinner setups? Do you mean sickening whimsy? Perhaps sickening whimsy. It's the Victorians! It's the Victorians! Salt sellers would make their way over to the Victorians. And their love of sickening whimsy and extremely rigid class structure enforced by a series of nonsensical rules. The rituals. They're <laughs> intricate. Intricate rituals to touch another man's salt. Yes. That meant that we'd created a perfect storm for salt sellers to take on a whole new dimension of popularity. A whole new world. Ken, what do we add in from around 1825? Why, it's the Industrial Revolution. Now everyone can afford salt sellers. Yay! Salt all around. <laughs> Looks like salt's back on our menu, boys. Yeah, there are actually a lot of rules to using salt cellars at the Victorian table. Of course. You mustn't take too much nor too little lest you insult your host and your table partner. Exactly. And depending on how close you were to the master salt, the more important you were to the person who had invited you. There is even a term referred to as below the salt <laughs> to call out people of lower social standing. <laughs> it is also important to know whether or not your salt cellar was shared, in which case you are absolutely not to pinch the salt with your nasty little fingers. Horrible. But were instead to use a utensil to sprinkle it over your food. But you cannot season your food until you have taken at least a single bite of it. Because to do otherwise is to imply that your hostess has hired a cook who doesn't know how to season food properly. If you put salt on your food before eating it, you're going, listen, you and I both know the score here. It's bland. That is still an etiquette rule today. <laughs> that hasn't changed. Yeah, but 
the consequences of that etiquette are different. Yeah. You're just making everyone who works in the restaurant sad, which is, I would argue, worse than what the Victorians were doing. I don't think the people in the restaurant care much what you do with the food once it gets to you. I think they care a little. It depends on the restaurant. I guess. Like, I don't think anyone at Wendy's is crying when I put pepper in this ketchup, but like, if I go to like an actual independently owned local eatery, I think they'd be a little sad. (laughs) Hey, dial back. You put pepper in your ketchup? Yeah. Dog, what? It's just part of the extremely normal human food I eat every day. Okay. (laughs) So two things came together during the Industrial Revolution to make the salt cellar ubiquitous on the table. Pressed glass manufacturing and Sheffield plate electroplating. Ah, hell yeah. Now everything can be coated in silver. Everything can be coated in silver. So you can get salt cellars made out of pressed beautiful glass, cut glass, or silver plate. So eventually the salt cellar becomes indispensable, not only for the kitchen, where I argue it is still indispensable, and I'll get to that a little after, but for eating. The Victorians also introduced salt shakers, but they were extremely unpopular. Wait, we didn't have the shaker before? No, the shaker was the product of about 1830. Holy shit, my life is a lie. How long did you think we had salt shakers for? Since 1830. I mean, 30 years, which is a normal amount of time for a human to live. Okay, I'm... Okay. Now, do you know why the salt shaker had such a hard time becoming popular? Did we not figure out the clumping issue yet? Precisely! Salt clumped, and salt was actually generally not milled very fine either, meaning that the holes had to be big. Oh, we've got those nice coarse grains. Yeah. Flakes of salt, if you will. 1911 is when people would start using salt shakers in earnest because salt started getting produced with anti-caking agent, which meant that it could be shaken more freely from the salt shaker. And from there, sadly, the salt cellar, the open salt, would be relegated only to chefs of discerning taste and habit. I mean, you can see why, though, right? Because now the salt is, like, safely stored away in a little container that no one can stick their big ugly fingies in. But it limits you to only one kind of salt. Now that I am spoiled by the disgusting excess that is many different salts from many different areas, I have a problem with my salt shaker. And it's that I can't put large grains into it. Everyone knows kosher salt and sea salt taste better, but I can't shake them out of a shaker. And it's really annoying going into my fucking spice cabinet. Why don't you put them in one of those sugar canisters with a little tab? No, that's too much salt. What's the most common measurement for salt in a recipe? It's a pinch. Because there's an implied to taste. I told you about how one time my cousin was in charge of making Flesh of Christ for Maundy Thursday and used a recipe from the Magic School Bus line of books in order to make the bread, but the book had a misprint where instead of teaspoons of salt, it called for tablespoons. Ah. So Christ's flesh was very salty, which to me made it delicious. So when we had some leftover after the service, I got to take it home. Yeah, you should see a doctor. (laughs) And then we were driving home and my parents noticed I was eating something in the backseat and they asked me what I was eating and I replied, flesh of Christ, because it was. And may I say, he is delicious. Oh yeah, you guys don't do that blessing thing of the bread. I think it was technically blessed, but I think that might have been why they didn't want to throw it away and wanted someone to eat it instead. No, no, but like you don't transubstantiate your bread. I don't see why we wouldn't. Is your bread at your church the literal actual flesh of Christ? I mean, if it isn't, the whole ceremony seems kind of silly. It seems kind of silly either way, no offense. So you had me going there for a second because when you put that all together, I had in my head that there was a recipe for communion wafer in the Magic School Bus series of books. No. And I was shooketh. Were Unitarian Universalists? We were just cutting up regular (laughs) bread into cubes. I was shaken. Not stirred? (laughs) Yeah. That's the only way I like to be served. (laughs) 
get something you got. Like the the, the the magic school bus go to Rome and then it burned as heretics. <laughs> so um <laughs> Uh, I just keep picturing Arthur up on the stake going, not again. <laughs> I mean, you started this by talking about salt and recipes, and now here we are. And then the one that makes all the jokes says, like, we're toast. <laughs> and it plays that womp womp sound. <laughs> so first, my arguments that a good cook will should probably swap to a salt pig is that you can have more interesting kinds of salt. And I think it makes for more accurate measurement. Using shakers for seasoning has always betrayed me. And for all of that anti-clumping stuff, it sure do clump up. Furthermore, the shaker, the enclosed glass, encourages wetness to accumulate, causing clumping, the one thing I don't want in my salt shaker. Whereas, if I use an unglazed pottery, it will help draw the moisture out of the salt naturally. And what's more, salt, being naturally very resistant to harboring any bacteria, is pretty sterile all the time. So why don't you just get a salt shaker made of unglazed pottery? That sounds like the solution here. Because I want to use my hands to pinch. You just want to get your grubby little mitts directly into the salt? First of all, stop calling them grubby. (laughs) Second of all, (laughs) it is more precise and precision is important with salt. And also, because I, can, I implore you, how am I supposed to get my coarse kosher salt into a shaker? I keep telling you to use the one designed for sugar. No, that's way too much salt all at once. And then I'm gonna have to pour it in my palm and pinch it from there. And then I'm gonna put the rest in the sink, and that's a waste of my salt. Why are you putting it in the sink? You're supposed to throw it over your shoulder to blind the devil. Yeah, okay, well that's great, but I have cats, so... So they can catch it, and now it's enrichment. I'm gonna throw it over my shoulder to blind all three of my cats, and I don't <laughs> want them well-seasoned, thank you. They're spicy <laughs> enough as it is. So that's my brief argument for why you should swap to a salt cellar or salt pig, because that is very fun to say. Right. So now imagine all three of your cats leaping up onto the counter and putting their grubby little paws into the salt cellar. You can get a salt cellar with a lid. Sounds fake, but okay. Okay. Well, someday, someday you will believe. (laughs) But the eradication of the salt cellar from the American table did lead to one positive effect. They are now collectible. Yay! And what's more, their one-time ubiquity means that there are lots and lots of them. And what's more is that they're small, which means they are easy to store and display. And what's more is that they're little dishes, which means that you can probably find a function for them even if it's not salt. Is there anything they can't do? There's very little they can't do. I mean, I guess like mending a broken heart. Wow. (laughs) And all of this combines to create something that you can find pretty readily at an antique show, market, yard sale for pretty much not a lot of money. They're small and they're plentiful, which is your perfect storm for an antique that is cheap and easy to collect. It also doesn't hurt that they come in such a huge variety of shapes, colors, materials, decorations, even sizes, as we've discussed. It can be quite, quite exhilarating to find a master salt among the mini salts. And there are aspects that make it quite valuable if you're really on the hunt for that dollar sign, such as ones made of sterling, ones that can be reliably dated back to the Middle Ages, (laughs) anything a king owned, you know, the the usual. (laughs) Standard antique stuff. Anything particularly unusual or particularly beautiful will fetch a pretty high price, something like a Limoges, a fine pair of, I did see a pair of Limoges salt swans. With their necks entwined, that was $140 or so. Damn. There is the opportunity to bank it big, but it's not necessary to enter into collecting it. And it's just plain fun. It's fun to see all the different shapes and sizes and ways they come to form. And I just, I like any antique that I can use. They make great catch-alls, trinket dishes, or hey, I don't know, hear me out. Maybe you could use it for salt. (laughs) 
A bold stance. I've actually used them before for soy sauce. You're definitely going to want a lid on that one. Well, it's just for my, like, it's just for my meal immediately, and then I wash it. Oh, okay. Not for long-term storage. You know, it's just when I get myself some dumples and I need a dipping. You know, I don't have a soy sauce plate, but I have salt cellar. It makes my sushi feel fancy. Yeah. It's really easy to tailor them to your exact tastes. Do you want to only collect cut glass? Do you only want to collect porcelain, metal, silver? Do you only want to collect grains of salt? Do you want to collect the salt that got left at the bottom of them all those years ago so you can lick them and taste history? Yes. And you should. (laughs) And another thing is that people don't use them. People don't like to use them. Reproductions are pretty much unheard of. Oh, so most of what we find will likely be authentique. Exactly. And while you can still find examples up until the 1950s, 60s or so, they're pretty easy to clock because they look like stuff from the 1950s or 60s. Every now and again, they would come back into vogue for dinner parties and people with more money than sense. (laughs) But yeah, I would be shocked if you ran into a reproduction. I actually think they might be harder to find than genuine antique ones. You know, I just had a thought. What? Wouldn't salt centers make a really cute centerpiece at a wedding reception? They would make an adorable centerpiece at the wedding reception. Think about it, won't you? Thank you. Especially if you get some small silk flowers or even just like rock salt and petals. Like there is a lot you could do with that. Or if you're doing a candle display. I'm thinking of just like chunks of Himalayan pink salt. (laughs) To just, like, filter out the negative ions at your reception. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna get your bad vibes the fuck out of my wedding. So, some things to look for when you're collecting salt cellars. Number one, the spoons or shovels. Hell yes. Tiny spoons are surprisingly hard to find. Now, I have a theory. Small things get lost easily. Ding, ding, ding. He's hit the nail on the head. I win again. And it only gets worse because a lot of the shovels and spoons were actually glass. Oh, So they get lost and then shatter. Great. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my god, can you imagine breaking a glass spoon in a dish full of salt? I mean, that salt is a waste. That's second only to, like, breaking a glass in the ice bin at a bar. Like, holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, say goodbye to your fucking ice. Say goodbye to ice Zodia. (laughs) That doesn't even work. It works beautifully, you Philistine. I've known people who actually specifically collect the little spoons just because they take great delight in these miniature objects. I mean, hey, everyone loves a tiny spoon. There isn't really a set idea for how to identify a salt spoon because there are lots of tiny spoons for lots of tiny reasons. For more on that, check out our souvenir spoons episode. Yeah, even just other condiments like mustard. There's nothing that really sets them apart from other spoons meant for condiment or collecting purposes. Dolls. You know, a doll spoon that is metal looks the same as any other small spoon. I think you could pretty easily get away with a spoon that fits in the salt cellar and doesn't look ridiculous. The glass ones are actually a pretty good indicator that they are specific, at least to a condiment jar. I would strongly recommend against putting those in a salt cellar, particularly if you intend to store salt in it. I mean, I'd be careful with it. I'll carefully eat around the broken glass. Don't break it. Don't break the glass. Like, I don't know how to tell you. That. Don't break the glass. It's, it's that easy. Easier said than done, my friend. <laughs> they are pretty sturdy on the table. It's just when you drop them from a height or fling them. As is traditional when serving salt. A glass spoon that has a shovel shape is actually specific to salt. Uh-huh. Little tiny salt shovel. And salts that come paired with a reasonable salt spoon are much more valuable. If you're into collecting the metal ones, I would look out for corrosion from the salt. 
after a certain point and certain non-extraordinary decorative royal ones, you actually find a lot of them with glass liners because salt will eat away at any metal you put it in. We don't think of it this way because we eat it, but salt is like crazy corrosive. So I would first check to see if it used to have a glass liner and maybe just think twice about using any metal salt cellar without a glass liner. You're gonna have to be really, really diligent about emptying it and washing it after. Now you can tell that it has been corroded because they are usually black spots that have eaten away. I did find a book that referred to it as this destructive seasoning, which made me laugh. <laughs> it's acting out. It doesn't pay attention in class. Not living up to its potential. <laughs> it's really not. And yeah, the cost for these things can range anywhere from $3 to in the 100 200s right before you start getting into weird auction territory. Like I said, those $100 ones tend to be, you know, well-known brands, cut crystal, rock crystal, really big, nice, fancy master salts. Master salts do naturally, obviously, incur higher prices because they're bigger and they're harder to find. Overall, I think a very accessible price point for collecting. That is the spicy world of salt. Has it made you thirsty? I actually am crazy thirsty now, yeah. Thirsty for sources? Sources for today include 5,000 open salts. <laughs> no, I didn't look at that many. It's a book, A Collector's Guide Paperback by William Heacock and Patricia Johnson. Damn. <laughs> I would call it the definitive guide to identifying salts, although they do not provide values. It's also just wonderful if you want to see different salts. Hollyholden.com. What is a salt seller? GoodThingsByDavid.com, Antique Salt Cellars, CollectorsWeekly.com, Salt Cellars, OpenSalts.info slash research, and <laughs> there it is, and MessyNessyChic.com, The Unexpected Elegance of Antique Salt Cellars. If you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email us directly, AntiquesFreaksPodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends. You can tag us on Tumblr, AntiquesFreaks.tumblr.com, or you can check us out on Instagram at Instagram.com slash AntiquesFreaks. If you liked all the times I talked about salt, feel free to scroll on down to wherever you're listening to this and leave us a fun review. Pretty salty, you might say. <laughs> we received a delightful review from Klut titled, Is It For Soups? <laughs> the show is very educational and entertaining. Similar format as Bowery Boys, which I like. Thanks. Now I know one handle is a chamber pot. And that's the most important thing to know. Thank you, Klut. Very sweet. It's very kind of you. Thank you. And if you would like more Antiques Freaks in your week, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks, where every week we are reading and reviewing a chapter of the Victorian penny dreadful Varney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right, you. Au revoir. Goodbye.